All right, so this morning we are starting a brand new sermon series entitled The Names of God. And something that I want to make crystal clear here on the front end is that the primary reason why we are doing this series and the primary reason why we are studying the names of God is not so that we can be puffed up with more knowledge, right? The Bible says that's actually not a great thing. We are doing this series not so that we might be puffed up with more knowledge, but so that we might be filled up with more love, passion, and desire for the person and nature of God. In Scripture, what we discover is that a name wasn't just your title or your designation, but in Scripture, we see again and again the power of a name. The name described your person. It described your, your nature, your character, your personality. And so the reason why we are studying the names of God in this series, the series that will essentially take us through Christmas, is in order to better know, love, and worship the person and nature of God. Amen? So with that in mind, the first name that we are going to be looking at this morning, the name that will help kick off this series, is God's self-given proper personal name, which is Yahweh. Yahweh. And to do that today, I would love for you to turn to the Old Testament book of Exodus. We are going to be in Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3, and we are going to be looking at verses 1 through 14. Exodus 3, verses 1 through 14. And I would love for you to stand for the reading of God's word. If you're ready, say, I'm ready. ready. Verse 1 of chapter 3 says, Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mount of the mountain of God, which was actually Sinai, according to scholars. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, everyone say behold. The bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burnt. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face. For he was afraid, everyone say afraid, Afraid. to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I? Everyone say, Who am I? That I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. He said, God, this is God speaking, but I will be with you and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And then verse 14 says, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. It's the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Father, we are so grateful that you are 
the great I am. You are not past tense. You are not future tense. You are present tense. You are always present tense. In light of that, I pray that you would be with us in this moment. Father, I pray that from the moment I say amen, that you would be here with us present tense, that your presence would be felt. Spirit, I pray, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would take this inspired word and that you would use it. Not my words, but your inspired word. You would use it to bring conviction, to do what only you can do. Thank you that you are God and we are not. That you are the creator and we are the creation. Remind us of that even today as we look at your word and as we unpack these very, very important truths. Holy Spirit, lead us, guide us, And I pray that what happens here today would be for your glory and for our good. We ask it and we beg it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, and you may be seated. Now, this morning, uh, what we are going to do is we are going to look at this passage under two headings. We are going to begin today by looking at the person of Yahweh. And then after we look at the person of Yahweh, we are going to conclude by looking at the plan of Yahweh. The person of Yahweh will tell us who he is, and the plan of Yahweh will tell us what he does. But I want to begin today by looking at the person of Yahweh. Now, at the beginning of this story, we see, we find Moses in the wilderness shepherding his father-in-law's flock. It's not even his flock, okay? He went from a prince of Egypt to shepherding a flock that doesn't even belong to him. And he is out there, if you remember, the reason why Moses is even out there is because essentially he attempted in his own power, in his own strength, in his own ability to deliver the people of God. And he essentially failed miserably at that task. So much so that after he killed the Egyptian Soldier, he saw a, essentially an Egyptian uh, mistreating one of his fellow Israelites. And so he decided to intervene. And if you look at the story, not only does the Egyptian not want him there, but the Israelite doesn't even want him there. They're like, what are you doing, man? He ends up killing the Egyptian. Pharaoh finds out. And so Moses escapes. He, he runs away into the wilderness out of fear for his life. Now, even though that happens in chapter 2, And we are in chapter three. A lot of times in scripture, we are prone to forget just how much time passes. That because it's one chapter away, it must have not have been that long. But it was actually 40 years that had passed from when he ran away to when this moment happens. So he runs away. And as he runs away, he meets his wife, right? He also not only meets his wife at a well, but then he also becomes a shepherd, a shepherd of his father-in-law's flock. But you have to imagine, we, I think we're also quick to forget that these people were human. And I got to imagine that over those 40 years, all that time alone in the wilderness, Moses had a lot of time to reflect. And because he was a man with emotions, I have to imagine he felt a lot of regret. He felt a lot of shame. He felt a lot of loneliness and isolation. Because if you look at the story, he left his, his family behind. His Israelite family, everyone he knew stayed behind. He was the only one who escaped. And so you have to imagine that over those 40 years, there's a lot of internal processing happening. I could have done this or I should have done that. And so that's where Moses finds himself. And what he doesn't know is that essentially in those 40 years of shepherding sheep, God was actually preparing him and training him for the next 40 years of shepherding God's people. The shepherding of sheep was training. It was preparation for the shepherding of other sheep, which were going to be way more difficult to manage and to lead. You see, what many of us don't realize is that Moses was always the right person for, the, for it. He was always the right person. He was the person God wanted to use. The problem is, is that the first time he carried out the wrong plan. He was the right person, but he carried out the wrong plan. Forty years later, God approaches the right person again and says, this time we're going to do it my way. 
this time we are going to carry out my plan, which is the right plan. So as Moses is out here tending his sheep, uh, we are told that he sees a thorn bush. And the reason why we know it's a thorn bush is not because of what it says here in this passage, but in the book of Acts, when Stephen is recounting the redemptive works of God, he goes out of his way to say that it was a thorn bush. So we know it's a thorn bush because of the New Testament, actually, not because of the Old Testament. So Moses is tending his sheep and he sees a thorn bush that is on fire. You see, but what's interesting about this thorn bush is that it's on fire, but it is not consumed. It is not destroyed. So the first part was very, was a semi-normal occurrence. As a shepherd, there was most likely moments where he came across bushes that were on fire. Being out in the desert, that probably wasn't that uh, unusual, right? That's the first part. That part was not what drew his attention. What drew his attention is that upon further review, he realized that it was on fire, but the bush wasn't consumed. It wasn't burning up. It was remaining in its original state. And so because of that, it piques his curiosity. And we are told that Moses walks up in order to investigate. And as he approaches, the Lord speaks to him from the bush. The Lord calls out to him and he says, Moses, Moses, which according to scholars in those days, when you said someone's name twice, it meant two things. One, it was a sign of intimacy, but it was also a sign of urgency. So God calls out to him in intimacy, but also with a sense of urgency. And, and one of the things that I love about Moses is that in verse four, he responds with, here I am. And you're like, oh man, look at Moses, man. What a faith-filled person. A few verses later, after he hears God's plan, he goes from here I am to who am I? All in the same conversation. Here I am, verse four, to who am I? Verse 11. Now, I'm not going to lie to you. When I first started ministry, I've been in ministry now for about 15, 16 years. And when I first started ministry, I remember this being one of the first passages I came across. And being a young, uh, up-and-coming pastor and preacher, I remember being very judgmental of Moses. Because I would read the story, and I would see him go from, here am I, then a few verses later, you know, here I am, to a few verses later, to he said, who am I? And then... A few verses after that, he goes to the point where he literally said God and says, who are you? Here I am to who am I to who are you? And I remember for the longest time being so judgmental of Moses, how in one conversation he can switch from faith to fear. But then the, the longer I have walked with Jesus... And the longer I have been in ministry, the more I realize that not only do I go through those same three stages, but it'll happen not in a week or even in a day. It'll happen in one afternoon. I will go from here I am, Lord, to who am I, Lord, to who are you, Lord? See, anyone here who's lived for more than three minutes, right? As uh, Dr. Steve Brown talks about, when you have lived enough, sinned enough, and suffered enough, you get to a place where you are no longer judgmental when you see people like this. We start the day, we read, we read our word, and we're, we're excited, we're pumped for the day. Here I am, Lord, send me. A few hours go by, a couple interactions with our family or meetings at work, a couple emails later. Right around noon, we're like, who am I? And by the afternoon, we're atheists. Right? Like, like who, are, who are you? <laughs> That's what the, the week, right, from Sunday to Sunday goes. Like, you, you leave church and you're inspired. You're like, I, I got this. I'm going to do it. And then by Tuesday, who am I? And by Friday, calling it a day. Maybe this Christianity thing isn't for me. So I've noticed that in my own heart, I have grown in understanding 
that the older I get, the more things I go through, the more I see myself going through these same stages on a weekly, daily basis. But what's interesting is that in the conversation, God, as he talks to Moses, God actually reveals more and more about himself, more and more about his person and his nature as the conversation goes on. And as they speak, as the conversation continues to progress, we start to learn several things about the person and nature of Yahweh. And so what I want to do for the next few minutes is I want to give you some of the, the characteristics, some of the attributes that we learn about Yahweh based on the conversation that he has here with Moses. If you're taking notes, I would argue that the first characteristic, the first attribute that we learn about Yahweh is that Yahweh is personal. He is personal. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, if you look at verse four, what you discover is that the one reaching out, the one initiating the relationship is not Moses. If anything, Moses has run away from the Israelites. Moses is out in the wilderness. He has not only walked away from the Israelites, in many ways, he's walked away from God. And what I want you to see is that Yahweh, the one who is uh, the, the personal Yahweh, is the one who both pursues and initiates the relationship. See, a few weeks ago, we looked at Ephesians chapter 2 when we were in our value series, and we talked about how we are spiritually dead, and that if God didn't pursue us, if God didn't love us and initiate it with us, there would be nothing we can do. We would never choose God in our own strength. And so often we think about that as just a New Testament reality. But what we see here in this passage is that it's true in the Old Testament as well. It's not Moses choosing God. It's not Moses pursuing God. It is God pursuing Moses. It is God choosing Moses. You know, it's interesting that sometimes people hear me say that, God choosing us, not us choosing God, and they're like, oh, I don't know if I like this. I don't know if I like that theology. That's not what they taught me growing up. Well, that's fine. But unless, the, unless you can find a Bible verse where it says something different, then come talk to me. Because what I see again and again in Scripture is not human beings pursuing God. It is God pursuing us. So you can get offended all you want. But the reality is, unless your Bible says something different, I see it again and again, not just in the New Testament, but even in the Old Testament. It is us, it is God choosing us, not us choosing God. And what's really cool about Yahweh being personal is that even though Yahweh is a self-sustaining, he is literally the self-sustaining, self-sufficient God of the universe, who doesn't need anyone, he still, in his humility, decides to initiate a relationship with you and with me. And what I love about him being personal is that in many ways it is a reaction to what many people believe in our day, that God is some abstract force, some abstract power or energy. What we see here in this passage is that he is a personal being who desires a relationship with you and with me. So the first thing we see is that he was personal. The next attribute we see is that he is holy. He is holy. See, even though he is very personal on the one hand, he is also extremely holy on the other. How do we know? Well, the word holy that's used here in the passage it's described as holy ground. The word holy in scripture literally means to be set apart. It literally means something that is distinct, something that is separate. And so when God is described as holy, the word holy is literally describing to us God's uniqueness, God's separateness, his otherness. Well, we, what we discover when we look at the person of Yahweh is that he is perfect and we are imperfect. He is sinless, and we are sinful. He is light, and we are in darkness. That's what it means when we are told that he is holy. 
Now, we're going to spend more time later on talking about the fire. The imagery of fire here is, is crazy. And we're going to spend more time at the end talking about that. But in many ways, when we study scripture, one of the things that we see is that fire is a biblical symbol of God's holiness. And here's how we know, because this isn't the first time in Exodus that we see fire. Not only do we see it here in Exodus 3, but then a few chapters later, we see God manifest himself as fire again as he leads the Israelites through the wilderness, right, as a pillar of fire. And then even a few chapters after that, we see God do it again on the mountain. He's on a mountain and he reveals himself to Moses. He tells the Israelites to stay back because if they even touch the mountain, they die. But he shows up as fire and smoke. And that's just the book of Exodus. Three times God reveals himself in the form of fire. And the reason why I think that's such a beautiful picture of God's holiness is because God's holiness is not some passive attribute. God's holiness is an active force. And here's the thing about fire. Here's how fire works, in case you've never dealt with fire before. Fire can be used, but it has to be used according to its parameters, not ours. Right? If used properly, fire can warm your house in your fireplace. If used improperly, it can burn your whole house down. The way fire works is that unless you conform to it and meet its criteria, it will utterly destroy you. And that is how the holiness of God works. Dr. Sam Storms puts it this way. I love his summary of God's holiness. He says, the holiness of God only secondarily refers to his moral purity, his righteousness of character. Listen to this. It primarily points to his infinite otherness. To say that God is holy is to say that he is transcendentally separate. Holiness is not one attribute among many. It is not like grace or power or knowledge or wrath. Everything about God is holy. Each attribute partakes of divine holiness. It's not just one of the attributes. It's his primary attribute. No matter what attribute of God you are looking at, it is holy. Because God is separate from us. He is distinct from us. He is creator and we are creation. It quite literally is who he is. And this is why when you see people interact with God, you see that many times their reaction is holy, holy, holy. It's the only response people can have when they are in the presence of a holy God. Because it quite literally describes who he is and his core at his essence. Now, we see Yahweh's holiness because quite literally Moses is here. And so, so, so on the one hand, we see that Yahweh's personal, right? Because he calls Moses to himself. But yet on the other hand, we see that he's holy because Moses starts getting too close. And he's like, hey, man, stop right there. Trust me, for your own good, stop right there. Take your shoes off because you are on holy ground and stop right there. For your own health and for your own safety, do not get any closer. You see, and in those days, what commentators say is that in those days, uh, when you took your shoes off or your sandals off, it was a sign of respect. It was a sign of reference to someone who you considered a superior. And so for Moses, it would have made perfect sense that if this truly is God, I have to take off my shoes and my sandals. So much so, not only does he take off his sandals, but it says that he hid his face because he finally understood who was calling out to him from the bush. And what's interesting is that this is actually the first time in Scripture, if you're reading from Genesis onward, that God is described as holy. It's not the last time, but it's the first time in Scripture that the word holy is used to describe the person and nature of God. But just like fire, you can get close to God, but not too close. So the first thing we see is that God is personal. The second thing we see is that Yahweh is holy. And then I would say that the third attribute that we see 
is that Yahweh is self-existent. Everyone say self-existent. Now, where do we see that? Well, in the conversation, like we mentioned, Moses, he goes from doubting himself, who am I, to doubting God, who are you? And God, instead of just slapping the brother, (laughs) decides to entertain his question. And in responding to Moses' question of who are you, God actually gives him his personal proper name. God replies and says to him, my name is Yahweh. I am who I am. Now, what does this name Yahweh tell us about God? Well, scholars argue that this is very much his personal name, his proper name. Like my name is Will. God's name is Yahweh. This is his personal proper name. There are many other names given in scripture, but this is God's proper name. If God were ever to sign a check, this would, he would sign it with Yahweh. This is his personal proper name. It is such a sacred name that quite literally Jews wouldn't even utter it. They knew that it was the name above all names. They knew that. So they wouldn't even utter it. Even the men, the Jewish scribes who would be rewriting the Old Testament, they would write it out, but they would never say it out loud out of fear that they might say his name in vain. That's how sacred the name of Yahweh is. And then what happened over time is they, well, as they got translated from, you know, Hebrew into Latin, what happened over time is they took the Hebrew word Adonai, which means Lord. They took the vowels that were in Adonai, the A, the O, and the A, and they put it into the word Yahweh, because Yahweh is only four consonants. There's no vowels in the word Yahweh. It's literally Y-H-W-H. And so they took the vowels from Adonai and put them inside the word Yahweh. And it's actually how they ended up getting the word Jehovah in Latin. When it was translated into Latin, they got Jehovah. So Jehovah is Yahweh and Yahweh is Jehovah. Here's the problem with this. I just thought about this right now. Um, I don't know if you guys follow, uh, maybe, maybe you don't, but if you follow hip hop at all, I just, I just realized how ridiculous it is that Jay-Z calls himself Jehovah. You know that one day that brother's going to have to stand before the real Jehovah? You know how awkward that's going to be? Anyways. His problem, not mine. The word Yahweh, it literally means in Hebrew to be. That's what it means. It means to be. Two words. So by God saying he is Yahweh, what he is saying to you and to me is that he is quite literally the self-existing one. He is the only one who never came into being. And he is the only one who will always be. He was here before us. And he will be here after us. Here's what makes God self-existent. Let me give you a very clear example of how God is different from us. We are not self-existent. There are many things in our life that if someone took away, we would die instantly. If, If they removed the sun from our sky, we would die. If oxygen was removed, we would die. If there wasn't any water or food, we would die. But the reason why God is self-existent is because there's nothing you can take away from God that'll make him stop existing. He is quite literally self-reliant, self-sufficient. He needs absolutely nothing from us in particular or from creation in general. That is why God is Yahweh. That is why he is the self existing one, which again, going back to the fire, I would argue that the fire not only captures his holiness, but it also captures his self-existence, his self-reliance, his self-sufficiency. Why? Because Moses sees the fire and there's no fuel. There's no propane tank there. The fire is a self-perpetuating fire that can be sustained without any other source. 
So the fire doesn't just reveal God's holiness. It reveals God's self-existence. Essentially, by God saying that I am who I am, he is literally saying to Moses, I literally depend on nothing. And everything depends on me. Let, let's get that through your head. God depends on nothing, and yet everything depends on God. Nothing caused me, and yet I caused everything. He says to Moses, I am self-existent, I am self-sufficient, I am self-reliant, and I am the only truly independent being in the universe. I was here before everything, I created everything, and I hold everything together. Here, here, before I tell you what it is, let me tell you what he's not saying. He doesn't say, hey, my name is uh, uh, Yahweh, I, I, I am or I was who I was. He doesn't say I was who I was. He's not talking in the past tense, like his glory days are past him, right? Like people that you meet in your 50s, you're like, oh, you should have met me in high school. I was awesome. Like, well, that's great, but we're living in the present now, okay? Dress your age, thanks. <laughs> it's not I was who I was, past tense. He doesn't even say I will be who I will be, future tense. So it's not like he's coming to Moses, you know, like some stockbroker saying, hey, you want to invest in my stock now because I'm going to get better, bro. It's only up from here. No, it's not past tense or future tense. It is present tense. I am who I am. God is always present. God is always current. Always. There's never a moment in human history where God is not present and God is not current. That's what he tells Moses. Here's the other thing I want you to see. By him saying, I am who I am, what he's also not saying is he is not saying to us, I am who you want. Because what our culture teaches about God is that God is who, whatever I want. Oh, I don't know about the God of the Bible. My God doesn't punish sin. My God is good with my lifestyle. He's good with this decision or that decision. That's not how God works. It's not I am who you want. God is not the God you want. If God was the God you wanted, or if God was the God that you fully understood, he would cease to be God. What makes him God is that we can't fully understand him. If you can understand your version of God, that ain't the God of the Bible. He is not who we want. He is who he is. We don't conform. He doesn't conform to us, to our will. We conform to his will. Dr. John Piper, in one of his last sermons at his church, he preached on this passage. And here's what he said about this idea of God's name being I am. I love this. He argues that this truth about God is the most basic and foundational truth in all the universe. In all the universe, that God is or that God is who he is. He says out of the billions and billions of facts that make up the universe, this one is the one underneath all of them. It's like a Jenga, those Jenga blocks. If you pull this one, it all falls. It is the most basic and foundational truth and fact in the universe that God is who he is. He says it is the foundation on the one hand and the consummation on the other hand of all truth. It is the cornerstone of our lives and of our marriages and of our ministries and of the universe. If, because if God isn't, then neither are we. That's what he says. And he says, in light of that, this is how he summarizes it at the end of his sermon. He says, therefore, listen to this. It is cosmic outrage, billions of times over, that God is ignored, treated as negligible, I could read, questioned, criticized, treated as virtually nothing, 
and given less thought than the carpet in people's houses. Outrage. Blasphemy. Treason. When we as his creation ignore him, question him, criticize him, and treat him as less than the carpet in our homes. See, what we see in Exodus 3 and 4, I didn't read 4, but essentially the conversation keeps going and Moses and God just keep going back and forth. You would think Moses is already questioned enough. No, he's not done yet. Because then in, in, in 4, he keeps telling God how it can't be me, don't send me, Right? The, the conversation is going. For, for two chapters, Moses is questioning and debating and essentially doubting God. And in spite of God's person, in spite of his presence, in spite of even the promises that he makes Moses, Moses refuses to respond by faith. Here's something that I want to, here's why I want to make this point. Because at first you're like, okay, he has doubt. Everyone has doubt, right? We all struggle with doubt. But after God reveals who he is, after God tells him what he will do, after God gives him his will and his resources, Moses is still doubting. Did you know that at some point doubt becomes disobedience? We're all going to doubt. But when God has revealed to you who he is, when God has revealed to you what he wants. Some of us are sitting on the, 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 the bench, you know, on the sidelines, waiting for an answer God's already given. And at some point, doubt becomes disobedience. And that's what we see. And here's what's interesting too. When you look at the life of Moses, I would argue that Moses, you would think that because 40 years have passed, Moses is a different person. But one of the things we talked about when we were looking at family of origin is that time doesn't heal, time just conceals. Moses was the same exact dude just 40 years later. Well, how do we know? Well, because I would argue that the first time Moses tried to deliver God's people, he was struggling with the superiority form of pride. And here's what I mean. He saw that God's people needed to be delivered, and he thought, surely I'm the one that can do it. And so in his superiority form of pride, he tried to deliver God's people in his own power. But here, I would argue that what Moses is actually dealing with is not humility. What he's exhibiting is the inferiority form of pride. That's what C.S. Lewis talks about, that there are two types of pride. When we think of pride, we only tend to think about the superiority form, the person who looks at a situation and says, I can do it. Right? But he says that the shadow side of pride that people don't think about is the inferiority form of pride, who is the person who looks at a situation and says, I can't do it. The problem with both of those people is that they're focusing on I. They're both just as self-centered because they're focusing on themselves. So Moses goes from the superiority form of pride 40 years prior. And here he's not struggling with humility. He's struggling with the inferiority form of pride. If you look at the text, it's shocking how many times he says I and me. And what about I? Would I go there? And what, what, what are they going to say to me? It's all about him. 40 years later, it is still all about him. He went from superiority to inferiority, but it's still pride and it's still about him. At some point, we have to move from I can't to you can't. It's true, you can't. But it's also true that he can. It's not about who am I. It's about who, who are you. It's who you are that ultimately will get me through this. You see, what Moses was ultimately struggling with was not a lack of self-esteem. It was a lack of God-esteem. You see, when God heard from Moses, hey, I can't do this, God wasn't shocked. God wasn't like, oh my goodness, What? The whole plan is ruined. What do you mean you can't do it? God didn't gasp when Moses said, why me? I can't do it. That wasn't shocking to God. God knew Moses couldn't do it because God saw Moses try to do it the last time. 
This is why we have to be careful, church, with what I call the Prince of Egypt gospel. You guys remember that movie, Prince of Egypt, that came out back in the day? The Mariah and Whitney song, right? If you believe, which I think Mariah is the goat. That's a whole other conversation. But uh, uh, let, me, let me read to you a quote from that song. There can be miracles when you believe. Though hope is frail, it is hard to kill. Who knows what miracles you can achieve when you believe? Somehow you will, you will when you believe. See, a lot of us, and I would argue that a lot of preachers will preach this text and they will preach the Prince of Egypt gospel. They will say, hey, hey, there's going to be a miracle when you believe. The miracle is based on you believing. Right? But the problem is that's not what the story teaches. I love Mariah and Whitney, but that's not the gospel. The, the, here's what the lyrics should say. It's not a miracle when you believe. It's a miracle that you believe. The fact that you and I believe at all is the work of God. That's the miracle that God has given us saving faith. It's not when you believe. It's a miracle that you believe. See, the, the Israelites knew better than we did, though. Because based on, because they lived through it, we didn't. They never for a moment could have assumed that they were the ones doing it. The bush, the plagues, the pillars, the Red Sea, the manna. What we see in this story is that the miracle doesn't depend on us, but on God. It's not that there can be miracles. No, there are actual miracles in the gospel. But it's not when we believe that they happen. It is in spite of our unbelief that they happen. I ruined that song for somebody. <laughs> but at the end of the day, here's what I need you to know. The only thing that's going to move you from doubt and from disobedience is when you realize that God calls us not because we are adequate, but because he is adequate. Not because we are sufficient, but because he is sufficient. Not because we are able, but because he is able. And not because we are powerful, but because he is powerful. Until we take our perspective off of us and onto him, we will not respond the way God is calling us to respond. Amen? So that is the person of Yahweh. And I want to conclude today by looking at the plan of Yahweh. You see, in the passage, Yahweh reveals his plan to Moses. He literally tells Moses, I have seen their affliction. I have heard their cry. And as a result, I have come down to do something about it. He informs Moses that his plan is this. His plan is to deliver and redeem his people from the slavery and bondage to Egypt. And so that's Yahweh's plan, essentially. That, that is his pattern of redemption. You see, but what I would argue that for us to truly appreciate the redeeming power of Yahweh, we have to realize that this plan actually points us to a greater plan. This pattern points us to a greater pattern. This story points us to a greater story. And the reason why one day there would need to be a greater plan, a greater pattern, a greater story is because there are a lot of things in this first story that we just looked at today that are left unresolved. Even after Moses delivers the people in the power of God. But I would argue that the, that the biggest tension that is left unresolved in this story, that if we're not paying attention, we can just read right past it, is this. How can a personal, intimate God ever have a relationship 
with unholy, broken people. You see, because on the one hand, we found out that God is personal and intimate. And yet in the very next point, we learned that God is holy and separate. See, that tension is never dealt with in this story. How can we ever have a relationship with a God who's personal and yet holy, who is intimate and yet separate? Since our God is a consuming fire, on the one hand, he is beautiful and attractive. And yet on the other hand, he is dangerous, frightening, and he will burn up anything unholy, which includes you and me. On the one hand, he is life-giving, and yet on the other hand, he is death-dealing. That's the tension that never gets resolved in Exodus 3. It's managed in the Old Testament because at the temple there was burnt offerings. See, a lot of people, you might wonder, what did they do with all the sacrifices, right? All these animals being sacrificed in the temple. Well, what we are told in Leviticus 1 is that whenever a sacrifice was made, you would have to take it and burn it. The, the, the process wasn't actually done until that animal was put on the altar and burned, quite literally destroyed by the purity of the fire. And then that would become a sweet aroma to God. The sacrifice was only half the work. You would then have to burn it on the altar. Because if not, they would have all these bodies laying around. So you would have to burn it. That was the second part of the process. And so I would argue that the burnt offerings kind of manage the tension a little bit of how a personal God can, who is also holy, be in relationship with us. It kind of managed the tension, but it never actually solved it. In the Old Testament, this tension is managed, but it's never fully resolved. So the question is, how would Yahweh one day address this issue? What would be his plan? Well, here's the thing. I would argue that God's solution to this tension is actually foreshadowed in this very passage. Because if you look very closely, there's something that you might have missed as we were reading through this text the first time. You see, there's a reason why Moses isn't fully consumed and destroyed by God's holiness and this fire. There's a reason why. And the reason why is because there was actually a mediator present in the story. There was a mediator in the bush. And you're like, what are you talking about? Well, we are told in verse 2 that specifically the being that was in the bush was the angel of the Lord. So quite literally, the reason why Moses isn't consumed and burned up by the holiness and purity of God is because there was a mediator in the bush. The question is, who is this mediating angel of the Lord? Well, uh, scholar Alec Motier tells us who it is. Look what he says. He says, the angel of the Lord is revealed as a merciful accommodation, whereby the Lord can be present among a sinful people when were he to go with them himself, listen to this, his presence would consume them. Then he says, and I love this, there's only one other person in the Bible who is both identical, identical with yet distinct from the Lord. One who without abandoning the full essence and prerogatives of deity or diminishing the divine holiness is able to accommodate himself to the company of sinners and who, while affirming the wrath of God, is yet a supreme display of his outreaching mercy. And then he says, the angel of the Lord cannot be understood except as a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ himself. Come on, church. In other words, according to Motir, the angel of the Lord is none other than Jesus Christ himself. The reason why Moses isn't swallowed up is because there was a mediator in the bush. It is the angel of the Lord that shows up. And Jesus himself says as much because in John chapter 8, verse 58, he is interacting with the religious leaders 
And he's talking to them about Abraham. And he says, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus says to these men, these religious men who knew their Old Testament, he wants them to know. He could have said, before Abraham was, I was. No, no, no. He says, before Abraham was, I am. He wanted them to know. And as a result, he wanted us to know that he was the voice that spoke to Moses out of the thorn bush. Jesus Christ is the great I am. And here's what's beautiful about the humility of Jesus. Really, the humiliation of Jesus, if I'm being honest. Him being Yahweh, him being the great I am, in Exodus 3, he is so holy that he tells Moses, take off your shoes, bro. Take off your sandals. You can't even be in my presence because I am so holy. He tells Moses to take off his sandals because Moses is on holy ground. But then when you get into the New Testament, John the Baptist shows up on the scene and he says, the Messiah who will come after me is so holy that I am unworthy to even loosen the thong of his sandals. Okay? John knew who he was. And yet, at the Last Supper, Jesus Christ, the great I am, takes off his robe, kneels down, takes off the sandals of his disciples, and washes their feet. Yahweh, the great I am, takes off his robe. And instead of them taking off their sandals because they're on holy ground, he takes it off for them and washes their feet, which was something that a servant or a slave would do. And what scholars say is that him taking off his robe represented his death. That, that whole thing was a representative of his death, that he would have to die on the cross. He would be disrobed and die. But then right after it says he finishes washing their feet, he puts his robe back on and goes back to, seated, to be seated in the place of honor at the table, which they say represents his resurrection and his ascension. And then in that passage, at one point, he's referring to himself and he says to the disciples, I am he. Again, he tells them, I am. Again. But here's the thing. I still don't think we've seen enough of the plan yet. I don't think we've given God enough glory yet. Because according to Dr. Warren Gage, who was a professor of Old Testament at Knox Seminary for many years, not only does the angel of the Lord point to the person and work of Jesus, but so do the bush and the fire. So listen to this. According to Dr. Warren Gage, he argues that in our English language, we can actually overcategorize things like plants, bushes, and trees. In English, we can overcategorize. We can be too specific. And what he says is that in Hebrew, they were not as specific when it came to botanical categories. So, for example, where we hear the story about Haman uh, being hung on the gallows, in the Hebrew there, it's, he was hung on a tree. Right? Or when we hear the story about Elijah throwing a stick in the water, in the Hebrew there, the, the Hebrew word there is a tree. So what we see is that in Hebrew, they were not as specific with uh, botanical categories the way we are. And he argues, Dr. Warren Gage argues, that to fully understand and appreciate the gospel implications in this story, we must see this bush symbolically as a tree. So essentially, he says, to truly understand the gospel implications, how Jesus would have preached this, it is a tree of thorns that is on fire. That's what the bush represents. But the fire also represents a lot in Scripture. We said earlier that it represents God's holiness. But what we also discover is that the fire represented God's wrath against sin and against his enemies. So we see fire here in Exodus 3, right? He shows up in a bush. Then in Exodus 19, he shows up as fire on a mountain. In Leviticus chapter 10, he shows up, uh, Nadab and Abihu are two priests who are offering strange fire and he consumes them. He judges them. He swallows them up in his holiness and in his wrath. 
When Elijah is, is with the prophets of Baal on the mountain, God reveals himself as fire. And not only does he bring fire on the altar, he consumes all the prophets and kills them with fire. In Deuteronomy chapter 9, Moses, speaking on God's wrath, says that God is like a consuming fire who will quite literally wipe out all his enemies. So again and again and again, we see that God's, that fire not only represents God's holiness, it represents his wrath against sin. His wrath against his enemies. So, so let me summarize for you. So the thorn bush is an emblem for a tree of thorns. And the fire is an emblem for God's holy wrath. So the question is, why does Jesus, the angel of the Lord, reveal himself in this way to Moses? Why does he reveal himself through the emblem of a tree on fire? Because one day he would do that again. You see, this fiery, thorny tree anticipates and points to another tree. These thorns point to another set of thorns that would be set on his head. This fire points us to the wrath that he would one day receive. What's crazy is that from this fiery little bush, from this fiery tree, Jesus himself, the angel of the Lord, he gives Moses, the mediator at that time, a, a redemptive mission to rescue God's people from bondage and from slavery. And he calls him to bring them into a promised land, which was Canaan. But Jesus Christ, the angel of the Lord, did that knowing full well that what Moses would accomplish would never be enough. He did it full well knowing that one day he would have to complete the ultimate work of redemption by dying on a tree and by taking the full, holy, fiery wrath of God. And he took it in our place in order to deliver us from our true enemies. Not the Egyptians or the Romans, but from Satan, sin, and death. And he did it in order to lead us to our true promised land. Not Canaan, not the United States of America, but heaven. In Hebrews 10, 31, it says that it is a fearful thing to be thrown into the hands of the living God. At the cross, Jesus Christ was thrown into the hands of the living God. And at the cross, he took upon himself our full suffering, our full wrath, our full fire, and our full thorns. Dr. Gage, in his commentary on this, says this. The cross, get this, quite literally became a tree of knowledge for Jesus Christ. See, the tree of knowledge is what got us in trouble in the first place, right? In the garden. He says that the cross literally became a tree of knowledge for Jesus Christ. Why? Because it says in the New Testament that he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. At the cross, Jesus Christ took our place. He took our wrath. And the cross was retributive for him so that it might be redemptive for us. And what's beautiful is that what made this such a miracle was that it was burned, it was consumed, but it was never destroyed. The bush was never destroyed. And the same is true for Jesus at the cross. At the cross, Jesus Christ is consumed. He is burned with the fire of God's wrath, but he was not destroyed. Because three, day late, three days later, we are told that he rose in victory and ascended to the right hand of God. And now, according to Philippians 2, God has given Jesus Christ the name above every name. Did you know that Yahweh is no longer the name above every name? But that according to Philippians 2, the name above every name is the name of Jesus Christ. And that at his name, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And because of the work that Jesus did, you and I, we no longer have to hide our face in fear the way Moses did. 
we are told in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30, that Jesus Christ is literally our holiness. That when we place our faith in God, Jesus becomes our righteousness and our holiness. So now, instead of hiding our face in fear, when we place our faith in Jesus, we can now with unveiled face behold the glory of the Lord in the face of Jesus Christ. Amen.